Welcome to the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast for University of Washington Bothell and Cascadia College. My name is Ben Haugie, and I will be your host today. In this podcast miniseries, I will be speaking to experts within the field of environmental ethics about various pressing issues. On today's episode, I will be speaking with Arthur Opst, a PhD candidate at the University of Washington, Seattle in philosophy. Arthur's main research interest is in wilderness preservation. This episode will be split up into two parts. This is part one, and our conversation mostly surrounds wilderness and non-human animals. In part two of this episode, we will discuss moral uncertainty and individual versus institutional responsibility for climate change. I also want to give an extra shout out to Arthur because this is actually our second recording of this episode. Long story short, I lost the original recording, which is the last thing I should have let happen, but it did. So Arthur was kind enough to re-record this episode, and for that, I really cannot thank him enough. And now, here's my conversation with Arthur Obst. Arthur, thank you so much for joining me today. It's good to be here. So I already gave you a brief introduction, but one more time, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? Great, yeah. Um, well, my name's Arthur Obst. I'm a graduate student here at the University of Washington uh, in the philosophy department. In the past, I've described my work um, as dealing with, of course, broadly speaking, the environmental crisis we're facing and thinking about the ethical dimensions and the philosophical dimensions of that, but also specifically thinking about how the environmental crisis has wrought a conceptual crisis for um, both environmentalists, broadly speaking, and uh, environmental philosophers. And so I'm really thinking about the most kind of cutting edge, practical environmental problems and thinking about how to address those. Um, so that's kind of what I do in my work, broadly speaking. Very nice. So I think a question that's very pertinent to um, our conversation today is about wilderness, just because a lot of your work surrounds wilderness, and I think it's an important concept to sort of work out and define before we dive into some um, larger questions. So my first question for you is, how would you define wilderness and is complete human absence from nature a requisite for an area to be considered wilderness in your mind? Great. So taking the first question of how to define wilderness. Um, so etymologically, wilderness uh, comes from, right, this, this, that it's in the word will. So it's related to etymologically to will and specifically being Mm self-willed so the way i kind of define wilderness and how others following how other uh both like environmental academics have understood wilderness is as a a Mm self-willed land so a place where human beings are not strongly interfering or most even more importantly controlling the area Uh, so that is broadly speaking, my notion of wilderness. This is also in keeping uh, with a lot the way that environmental philosophers and thinkers for a long time have spoken, from Thoreau to Muir and Elder Leopold. So this idea of will and self-willed, um, of course, in 
in other ways of talking about it is in this concept of wildness mm-hmm. and the wild. So um, wildness, I also just understand as self-willed. So this is kind of just when you're thinking about the con- conceptually what wildness is, this is what I'm talking about. Of course, when you're talking about wildness pres- preservation and practice, it's not quite so dry. One thing that I think uh, is worth saying, though, about wilderness is that sometimes I think people get the sense that wilderness as an idea might be a little bit old fashioned. Um, Mm. And in particular, I think there's a there's a sense that in some ways, like the battle for wilderness is is over. And right. There was a while when there was it was kind of an open question whether or not we would preserve areas of in talking in an american context we would preserve areas of wild acreage but now that we have that the battle is kind of over right uh, and this is even people who are defenders of wilderness kind of fall into this idea um so i'm thinking of people like mark woods have said that there's right there was a battle over wilderness and the preservationists who want to save wilderness have won and mm-hmm. so it's kind of old-fashioned but one thing that uh like in my work that i kind of discuss is how a lot of the so cli- anthropogenic climate change and the extent of current environmental impacts are really both um affecting wilderness in the sense of it's undercutting biodiversity, which is hurting a lot of species, which is undercutting the wild aspects of wilderness, but also that it's leading to a lot of people to challenge uh, that the desirably the desirability of wilderness or that wilderness is possible in the first place. So one of the ways that people think this is they say that. Well, given that human beings have so impacted the entire world these days in the form of, um, for instance, climate change, uh, there's just no wilderness left. Right. Right. So this speaks to your second question about, well, does a wilderness have to be pure um, in order to be protected? And my answer is emphatically, no, it doesn't have to be pure. And... It also never has. This has not been a claim that any environmentalist, um, especially environmental philosophers, I should maybe weaken my claim when I say no environmentalist thinks this. Some certainly have over time, right? Mm-hmm. And especially at times, people have kind of fallen into this idea of purity um, as the standard for wilderness. And that's a trap that everyone can maybe fall into not just with wilderness i think but with a lot of different concepts Mm -hmm. but um but in terms of the actual richness of the writing of again people like henry david thoreau and john muir and elder leopold and some of the famous advocates for wilderness preservation they've always realized that wilderness was messy and that in practice this idea that we can perfectly preserve wilderness in in some kind of idyllic pre-human state isn't possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, what kind of started the wilderness movement was the realization at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution about how, how humans were developing and kind of taking over um, and colonizing the entire planet. 
and the extent of the environmental impacts even beyond cities. And so this is what kind of initiated the wilderness movement. And so what's the idea of, again, if wilderness is defined as wildness, then it's important to recognize that wildness is on a gradient. Right. That there are, they can be more or less wild places. Uh, so even if, and, and also it's more than recognize that while it is true that wildness in terms of, right, if you define that as the self-will, that which is outside of human control, that is true in cities too. There's plenty of aspects of cities that are wild, but the degree of wildness in a place like New York City is going to be far less than the wildness in, for instance, Yosemite. Right. And even Yosemite is going to be less wild than, for instance, Alaska. Uh, so there's going to be gradients of wilderness. And what wilderness preservation does is to try to protect those relatively wild, undeveloped places and ensure that there are no that they are not developed as they might otherwise be. Uh, it's also worth noting, though, that this question about purity, it comes up a lot in, especially among critics of wilderness, mm-hmm. that they say that, uh, right, this is there's this kind of ideological, fanciful commitment to wilderness is rooted in this idea of purity, that we can, right, return to, like, some kind of Edenic... Uh, states, right? Um, and it's worth, even though, as I said, it's true that some environmentalists have used this language in the past, it's actually been much more common that has been used. This idea of purity itself has been used by people who don't want wilderness preservation to exist right. in the first place. So, for instance, um, after the passing of the Wilderness Act of 1960, um, for uh, developers who wanted to kind of get around the limitations of the Wilderness Act wanted to claim that a lot of areas that you would think are certainly wilderness are not wilderness because they don't meet this extremely high standard of purity, right? It's been affected. There's been a road there at some point within (laughs) 100 years or something, right? right? And so if that is enough to say, well, this isn't a wilderness area anymore because it has a human history in some sense, then guess what? It's no longer legally protected and they can develop it. Uh, So this has actually been an idea that has been propagated by people who are very much antagonistic to wilderness preservation and so we should be very suspicious about any kind of claims that wilderness doesn't exist in a pure state and therefore we shouldn't preserve it because that actually fits into the agendas of a lot of bad corporations Mm -hmm. that do not have the interest of non-human nature or humans at heart interesting so one thing I want to linger on briefly is you mentioned that wilderness is on a gradient right so i think you said that yosemite is not considered as much of a wilderness area as like a remote part of alaska Mm -hmm. can you just briefly explain why that is and what the requisites are um for something to be be considered like quote-unquote more wild than another place yeah sure so one of the reasons to think that of some place like yosemite is going to be less wild than somewhere in Alaska is that uh, as a national park, Yosemite is ecologically managed 
by the like agents of the national park system much more than someplace like Alaska, which is just much bigger. Mm-hmm. There's less people, um, and therefore there's less impact. So it's both that in Yosemite National Park, there's just a lot of more active management. Right. Um, now, this active management, for instance, like is used oftentimes as an instrument to promote the wildness mm-hmm. of the area. So it's not... So, for instance, there has been some influential environmental thinkers, for instance, something Emma Maris, who has pointed to some of the um, influences in the management of Yosemite or a place like Yellowstone and kind of shown how, well, this whole idea that these are wild natural places is an illusion because people manage them. Right. They try to, they control animal populations if they get out of control, right? And that's too simple, Right. Again, because you have to acknowledge different degrees of wildness. And as long as you recognize that just them being affected isn't does not or even controlled to some degree doesn't mean that they're going to be as controlled or as artificial as a place like the city. Um, All that said, right, if you especially if you're thinking about degrees of wildness, it's important to recognize that most of the national parks in the lower 48 are going to be um, less wild, especially the more popular places, not just because of the ecological management that is done, but also just because, like, these are really busy places. Yellowstone and Yosemite are extremely well-frequented, and that does have impacts on, especially if you kind of uh, stay on the beaten path, so to speak, that's going to make your experience of Yosemite and uh, Yellowstone less wild than if you get out into the more remote areas. Right, so it comes down to self-determination a lot, right? Yeah, yes. Okay, so kind of lingering on that on that self-determination sentiment, um, I want to talk about your dissertation. So your dissertation defends the moral value of quote-unquote letting be. So just to expand on what we mean by quote-unquote letting be, this refers to allowing plants animals uh, or ecosystems to self-determine, right? So quite literally here, uh, allowing nature to take its course. This is different from what's called a uh, beneficence approach to nature, which says that humans can and should uh, intervene in nature, uh, you know, so long as these interventions have some positive effects on the welfare of individual animals uh, or ecosystems. Um, And a letting be approach says that this approach, this beneficence approach, uh, is wrong and that humans should not and are not justified uh, in doing this sort of thing. Why do you think that letting be has such a positive moral value? Because I think there are probably some people who might not agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, in my dissertation, my kind of, I defend what I call a wildness ethic, which kind of put very simply, <laughs> I would say, is this ethic of letting be. Uh, so this is very much an ethic that is antagonistic to a lot of normal trends these days, mm-hmm. I would argue. And so I think you're very right to say that a lot of people would be maybe not a fan of a letting be ethic, yep. especially because, again, kind of going back to this, the very cutting edge environmental problems we face that, very you know, unless you're in denial, very few people um, – 
are capable of ignoring when it comes to whether it's climate change or the biodiversity crisis, right? Um, or you can name a n so many. Mm -hmm. There's a thought that, well, we've caused this mess, and so we have this responsibility to clean right. up, right, is, is a common sentiment among certain strands of the, even within environmentalism. And a letting be ethic is kind of antagonistic to some of that, or it gives us at least, it's a counter ethic to this idea that we should seize more control or kind of take more responsibility. Um, so why do I think that there can be moral value in letting be? So ultimately, I think a letting be ethic is rooted in humility. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this has really been at the heart of uh, preservation and wilderness preservation going back a long time. And this is language that, uh, well, this I, so this idea that humility might matter, if you just kind of keep that in mind when you're reading someone like Thoreau, you really see that this kind of, uh, this openness and this open-mindedness to uh, insensitivity to non-human nature and wild agencies is really kind of front and center. Mm -hmm. And moreover, in Thoreau's work and something like in Walden, a large part of that book is that he goes into um, like a way outside of the city and into more solid, a little bit more solitude, into a more wild place, in part so he can get a different perspective. Right. Um, so this, I think, speaks to uh, Thoreau's desire to kind of learn, which is reflective of humility. But this also, like more recently, humility as a term has certainly become more popular in environmentalism. So, for instance, someone like Rachel Carson, who a lot of people cite as like kind of her book, uh, Silent Spring, as like the mark for contemporary environmentalism. Yep. Right. That came out right at the beginning of like, right in the in the 60s when there was a lot of liberation movements going on. Right. And so uh, and environmental liberation and environmentalism was a big part of that kind of the vibe and the excitement of the 60s. Right. And so, uh, but in Silent Spring, Rachel Carson memorably says that uh, the control of nature is a term rooted in arrogance. I think I'm slightly paraphrasing mm -hmm. that. But what she's trying to get at, though, in Silent Spring is what I call this, no this notion of technological um, arrogance or ecological arrogance. And this is, would be the counter to... The, what I would argue is a moral virtue of technological humility or ecological humility. I kind of use those terms um, interchangeably. I'm kind of deciding which one I prefer. To okay. <laughs> so, um, but they're getting at the same idea. And what that idea is, is that so, uh, Rachel Carson wrote this book, Silent Spring, because she was observing the way that this kind of desire to more effectively uh, control agriculture and kind of and like get rid of pests that that people didn't want hurting their agriculture mm. that they were using pesticides and right. other poisons um, and that and they were doing this very indiscriminately and very short-sightedly um, in part Richard Carson argued because they just had this kind of arrogance and this lack of like foresight to be able to understand the effects of their actions. And so they thought that, well, right, they're able to, they, they see something they don't like, 
these pests, and so let's just poison them without thinking the long-term effects, right? This speaks to um, a lack of ecological humility in the sense that it doesn't acknowledge the sensitive interworkings um, of ecology the way that, right, if you just, just trying to use, like, what he, she describes as, like, the blunt caveman's club of, pesti of pesticides isn't going to just hurt the bugs or the pests that you want, mm -hmm. but also going to affect a lot of other aspects of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is what she, that's why a lot of that book is really about um, trying to get people to be more ecologically sensitive and, in effect, adopt more ecological humility that just because um, we have a technology, it's not always going to kind of turn out like we would think it would. Right. Right. This is also a really important lesson in Elder Leopold's thinking. So, for instance, in A Sand County, County Almanac, he tells the story of um, a really famous story uh, of right when he was kind of young and trigger trigger happy, he describes it. Uh, he thought that, well, if he takes out the wolves, there's going to be more deer for hunting. Mm. And so one day, right, he, the, as the story goes, he, he sees a wolf by the river and he gets his gun and he shoots it. And then <laughs> he hits and then he, as, he, as he walks up to it, he sees this green fire dying in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And in A Sun County Almanac, he says that this fire spoke to this wisdom that the wolf had that he could never forget. And what ended up happening is that because of once the wolf populations were pressured, the deer had less, of course, um, weren't fearful of the wolves, so they behaved differently for that reason, um, and they just were not killed by the wolves, and so their populations grew. Um, but then they overgrazed and there was not enough to feed them. And ultimately the deer populations themselves collapsed. And so there's this kind of uh, idea that there's these unpredictable effects that even if you have this simple causal relationship between I want more deer, so I'm going to kill this predator, a simple cause and effect relationship that ecologically Ecology doesn't work that way, right. and it's much more complicated than you might think. So why does this connect to a, a letting be ethic? Well, <laughs> the idea is that this, uh, the, the notion that we can fix all environmental problems by just seizing more responsibility and using more technology and just controlling more, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's out of control, so we got to just fix it. Uh, assumes that we can fix it right. <laughs> <laughs> through further intervention. And that is itself, especially at large scales, um, I'm thinking about certain proposals like geoengineering proposals like solar radiation management, uh, specifically in the form of um, sulfuric aerosol injection, yep. if you want to look it up. We'll get into that <laughs> a little bit later. Yep. Right, great. Um, that these technologies are going to be extremely... Uh, <laughs> likely to backfire mm -hmm. if you take seriously ecological and technological humility. So on the one hand, that recommends a letting be ethic. But there's another side of humility, which I think is just as important, if not more important, than ecological humility. And that's um, what I call moral humility. And I think that this is really at the heart of a lot of um, environmental thought, uh, and especially maybe the more poet, poetic-minded uh, yep. environmentalists, um, 
and maybe the more romantic environmentalists. But it's one that isn't, I think, oftentimes clearly defined um, or ex really identified outright. So when I think about moral humility, what I'm thinking about is, well, even if we could, let's imagine that our technologies actually could work exactly as we want it to. Like, so we, we can kind of make the world exactly as we want. Sure. Um, so in that sense, there would be no reason to adopt technological humility. Um, well, in the sense, like, that would provide no reason not to, for instance, like, turn the world into a giant artifact that is exi works exactly how human beings want, want it to. Even so, I think there would be something wrong at intervening and controlling nature, eliminating wildness at that sort of scale. And, well, part of my kind of intuition about this uh, is articulated well by the environmental journalist Jason Mark, who... Um, in his book Satellites in the High Country kind of writes that imagining this world that's a full that's fully an artifact says that this would be like a hall of mirrors where you just look around and all you see is yourself because and human values projected back at you why because through artificing we can only in controlling we can only control in light of what we want mm -hmm. and so we then turn the world into exactly as we want it to be but the notion that that is something desirable, I think speaks to extreme moral arrogance. And what I mean by moral arrogance is the idea that our vision, humans' visions of the good, I'm speaking our, right? But it's also important to recognize these are particular humans' visions because it's never going to be a perfect democracy about who's in control of right. what the world looks like, right. which is also important to remember. But that, in any case, the human vision of the good, the idea that whatever humans think is morally good in the world is the only way it should be, I think really does speak to moral arrogance. Um, and both because it kind of imagines that human beings know exactly what they want and what's good for them, which just seems uh, patently false mm -hmm. in many ways, right? And also doesn't really entertain that there can be many different forms of goodness in right. the world and that there isn't just one singular vision. Um, it seems to just erase all of that and assume like, well, whatever hu human beings, their felt desires, what they currently want, uh, not only is that justified and so we should impose that on the entirety of the earth, um, but it's the only justified way of things being. And so... I think that this is a really morally arrogant thought and that um, then kind of adopting an appropriate sort of moral humility that we don't always know what we want, that there are more ways of being good uh, in the world than mm -hmm. we can really imagine, that this speaks to the importance of letting be. And I think the ways that human beings, when they kind of go out in the nature and they feel themselves transformed, it's what I, um, Brian Nguyen calls this transformative value of nature, really speaks to this, how a lot of people really kind of have a change of perspective mm -hmm. when, they, when they visit wild, like wilderness areas and get exposed to wild agencies. And they start feeling more at home and more just kind of one life among many. Right. And it actually kind of oftentimes changes their perspectives really significantly and i think this also speaks to the importance of maybe not um 
deciding to impose whatever particular vision of the good human beings have at any particular time over the entirety of the planet. Sure. So, yeah, I like the distinction you make where there's this question of feasibility and pragmatism where we have to think, is it even practical or possible to for, for this human intervention to take place? But then there's also the further question of, well, even if it is practical, um, is it still the right thing to do? And that's where this moral humility that you've been discussing comes in. My next question is uh, is about whether or not there are any cases that you can think of in, in which you think human intervention in nature or in wilderness um, would be desirable. So one example is if we're somehow sure that the global temperature will rise by 7 degrees by 2050 unless we perform carbon sequestration. And in case uh, any listeners are unaware of what carbon sequestration is, um, it's a form of geoengineering in which CO2 is literally removed from the atmosphere, right? And sequestered in um, oceans or reservoirs uh, or, or elsewhere. And it can be a bit dangerous because, you know, it's possible for the carbon that gets sequestered to be released back into the atmosphere. Um, so it's not, it's not foolproof at all. But it is less dangerous than uh, other forms of geoengineering, such as one called um, stratospheric aerosol injection, or SAI, which involves literally releasing aerosols um, into the atmosphere to create a cooling effect that that basically mimics um, a volcanic eruption. So carbon sequestration is is a more moderate form of geoengineering. It's more moderate and less dangerous than um, SAI or something like SAI. And it also might have a relevant moral difference from SAI because carbon sequestration is just about removing human-caused CO2 emissions. So this brings me to my question. Are there any cases that you can think of where where human intervention would be desirable? I'm assuming you're just going to say it's on a spectrum and a case-by-case basis, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so uh, you've anticipated part of my answer, but I can say, of course, a little bit more than that. So context is extremely important, and the most difficult part of trying to write my dissertation is, although it's not the main focus, near the end I want to say something practical, like here are some guidelines. Yeah. Um, and I can provide, I like try to provide some guidelines, but it really, when it comes to particular cases of whether a specific intervention is desirable or not, or justified or not, it's really tricky sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because Oftentimes, there are, like, really good reasons. There's this this itch to do something, right? right? It's like you see something wrong and you want to fix it. Absolutely. And I think that, like, like that's a very human instinct. Um, And I also can sympathize, right? But at the same time, right, as as I just said, I do think technological and moral humility does recommend against this reaction. So then what do you do when it comes to particular cases? So the first thing to say is that, right, at very large scales, uh, it's a little bit easier to see how a certain technological intervention is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. So as mentioned, the idea of climate engineering, 
and solar radiation management, trying to mimic the effect of volcanoes by reflecting sunlight, which would cool the earth and counteract some effects of climate change, yep. if it works <laughs> as intended. Um, that this is a global scale intervention. So uh, not only would it then have be much more likely to have unforeseen effects uh, that make it arguably more of a gamble and than anything else. Uh, of course, putting a bunch of aerosols and in, into uh, all around the earth would certainly have an effect, right? And almost certainly that would have a cooling effect of some kind, but further effects that might follow and the effect that would have on ecology in particular is a lot more harder to, is a lot more difficult to predict. So in this sense, right, having appropriate technological or ecological humility as um, many environmentalists, including Elder Leopold and Rachel Carson, taught us to have, would then kind of provide a strong presumption against these technologies at this large scale. But also, it's important that moral humility is also more relevant when it's at these large scales because mm -hmm. it's going to be that much more control. Um, if it works as intended. Right. So one thing that I'm kind of thinking through right now is when it comes to a, a one of these cases of large-scale intervention is how that kind of whether it works or doesn't, it's going to be morally problematic, right? And a similar, and you, maybe you can anticipate like the reason I might think that. If climate engineering, like ideally, Right. The, that seems like the goal, the ideal goal of this sort of policy would be to have as much control over possible over the impacts of something like geoengineering and climate engineering. Mm -hmm. um, that you would even be able to have this at local scales. Right. Um, but the more you control you have, which would be presumably the goal of us having a scientific project and the research into this technology. The more control you have, the more it threatens um, this problem of imposing human control over more and more aspects of the entire world, which right. then is more and more morally troubling from a moral humility standpoint. And a way of kind of just making this clear again is imagining, like, let's say, because I'm in the United States, like Putin has control of this technology, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would be extremely nervous about that. Yep. Um, and partially this speaks to what I'm saying is that you're going to have one person and the kind of whatever will they may, they may have having this massive power over the entire planet, right. which I think is morally highly suspect, right? Um, and so that's one way motivating, motivating this. But of course, the less control you have, then the more technological humility like <laughs> suggests not doing this in the first place because you don't know it's just a gamble mm -hmm. um so this is a very so this is all to say that in specific cases of like large-scale interventions i can say more about okay maybe we shouldn't use this technology um we shouldn't i'll just say we shouldn't use this technology right is my view and i think humility does speak to that but at smaller scales and more case-by-case -case situations, including something like uh, carbon sequestration, which tries to suck carbon out of the air, uh, which is the greenhouse gas that is predominantly causing climate change as a way of counteracting global warming, 
I think that that's, from my perspective, less morally troubling uh, in part because it does not give, just by its very nature, it doesn't give human beings control over the entire planet, like climate engineering Mm -hmm. in the form of um, SAI might. Right. And so that is part of the reason why moral humility isn't quite, doesn't provide quite as much of presumption against it. Um, but also in terms of the technology and the risks going wrong, it seems like there's less technological risks because you're just kind of, on some sense, just directly undoing right. in some way kind of what the problem is in the first place. Now, that's not necessarily to say that there are, there are no problems especially any kind of reliance on carbon sequestration as a solution to climate change uh that is highly suspect because it's just not proven to be scalable right um it was extremely expensive and it's just not proven that we can like suck enough carbon out of the atmosphere to fix climate change so it would be technologically arrogant to rely on this technology instead of like decarbonizing for instance right you know, lowering our energy consumption as a way of um, combating climate change. So, yeah, but it really does depend on the context. But I think it, it's also just important to recognize just the background state where if we do have this idea, then we all can acknowledge we always have this desire to fix things. Mm-hmm. Then at some point, you need to just kind of put your foot down and say, let's not yeah. do this. <laughs> and so this is why I kind of talk in the in the language of presumption, that there should be a presumption against this technological interventions to f- solve problems. If there's another way of fixing yeah. it, or if, you know, fixing it in the sense of like, if there's a problem and it's caused by human beings, letting go, letting be, stepping back right. is a preferable solution. So we need to be taking those as a plan A, and maybe plan B, C, D, before under certain circumstances, if the moral justifications like preventing mass suffering of human beings, for yep. instance, really do justify intervention, then in that kind of situation, maybe it's worth the moral loss of kind of betraying moral and ecological humility. So that's what I can that's what I can say, but it's really messy. Interesting. I like I like that thought about a pres- a presumption of letting be because I think our baseline right now is that we have a presumption of intervention. Basically that, exactly. you know, we can and should reverse all of the damage we've inflicted uh, on the climate. And it's basically presumed that we will do something to reverse this. But yeah. you're saying that maybe actually the default should be mm-hmm. to assume that we're just going to do nothing and instead scale back our future carbon emissions. Yeah. Um, Exactly. And I think that this is, and as I was speaking to with like a lot, like right now, and there's many environmentalists who kind of, and just not just environmentalists, like there's a lot of environmentalists who do think that given the climate catastrophe that might be imminent, right, and given all the environmental problems we have, that this recommends, right, kind of a stronger presumption in favor of intervention. Right. Right. And if this is true among environmentalists, this is actually this is additionally true of like people who do not really care all that much about the environment in the first place. They're certainly going to say yes, even more so. We should have a strong presumption in favor of intervention, and this is kind of like that's a good way of putting my 
my main argument in my dissertation is the exact opposite that the the situation we find ourselves in which i would argue is a product of the industrial revolution and a mm-hmm. product of trying to control and more and more weaponize well yeah using the fossil fuels as a tool to kind of help human ends in ways that we think are really good and it backfired right that right. is itself a kind of example of why we should have certain technological humility to right like that there's this background context of partially what's pa- causing this environmental destruction is this presumption in favor of intervention and so it's the exact opposite of what a lot of people are increasingly saying. Instead of having a stronger presumption in favor of intervention, we need to have a stronger presumption in favor of letting be, given the back the context that yeah. we in uh, that is causing the environmental destruction we face. Right. Interesting. I I think it's important that you mention that assumption against uh, intervention because looking at it through like a, a baseline assumption is something I had never really considered. So I I really like that. So this seems like a good place to end uh, the first part of our conversation. As I mentioned, this is going to be a two-part episode. In the second part, we will discuss moral uncertainty and individual versus institutional responsibility for climate change. So please stay tuned for that. And Arthur, uh, how can people learn more about your work if they're interested? Great. Yeah. So um, I do have a website. So if you uh, just look up Arthur R. Obst, you will find my website and I think my Twitter is linked there um which you can also probably find through a google search i'm forgetting my tag i'll uh, i'll link i'll link everything in the description of this podcast as well also you know i'd like to plug um so again this uh this paper i just wrote uh, individual responsibility and the ethics of hoping for a more just climate future that was just recently um published online uh in early form um, through environmental values. So check that out. But also, um, maybe more accessible to the audience, I just, um, my I have a book with Steve Gardner called Dialogues on Climate Justice through Rutledge. And that is, um, that is going to be coming out later in 2022. And uh, hopefully that will be of interest to a lot of you. So especially if you're interested in a lot of the things I've talked about in this podcast, I would really encourage you to check that book. And um, because I think it really gives a much further dive into some of these issues, not just about climate change, which is primarily about, but even some of these things I was talking about, wilderness and wildness as well, especially in the later chapters. Great. So Everyone who's interested in Arthur's work, please uh, check the description of this podcast and you will find uh, the links to his work and his website and his Twitter handle. Arthur, once again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you for listening. And this is the Common Cause for Sustainability podcast miniseries on environmental education and environmental ethics hosted by Camille Andrew and Ben Hauge, brought to you by the University of Washington Bothell and Cascadia College. Find out more about our sustainability efforts through our website's uwb.edu slash sustainability and cascadia.edu slash b-a-s-s-p. See you next time.